Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. I'm your host, Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity, and in the last four years we've given away more than $250,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you'd like to contribute to this sponsorship fund or this podcast, please join our patron community today. It's really easy, and it starts at a dollar a month. That's only about 25 cents per podcast episode. Go to patreon.com forward slash renew the arts to learn more. How do politics and culture interact? You may have heard that politics is downstream from culture, but we all know that political realities can have a significant effect on our cultural environment. Is that effect large enough to warrant our current almost single-minded political obsession? Is there another or better way to make an impact for good? I'm here with Justice Stout, president of Renew the Arts, and we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more today on the Renew the Arts podcast. This is Why the Arts Matter More Than the Election. As of late, I think Christians have a particularly odd relationship with politics. And I think we need to address it. I agree. What's your thinking on it, though? (laughs) You want to start over? (laughs) No. (laughs) This is is how we should do it. Let's Let's have this conversation. Well, okay, a little bit of backstory. And we have recorded a podcast that touches on this, but we're going to flesh it out a lot more. Um, but a little bit of backstory for, for listeners. Um, I grew up in a really politically involved family. Uh, when I went to school, I majored in uh, politics and government and uh, planned on going into politics pretty much my whole life, or expected to. And at a certain point... Um, it was actually near the end of college when I was also working in the summers full-time for a U.S. congressman. I realized that the way that campaigning works, it felt like there was so much – there was so little that we could actually do or, or, or say or promise because really all the power was in the hands of the voters – so if we had a particular candidate um, that we were campaigning for in a certain area, we had to stump on issues that we knew the voting blocks already cared about, cared about, and were in favor of. Mm-hmm. And so I started, I, you know, leading up to that, I had this notion that like if we got the right politicians in office, we could see some real change happen. Mm-hmm. And there's still a little bit of truth to that, and we'll get swing back around to that. But overwhelmingly, I realized that if the general sentiment of the people is not in line with good policy um, or certain legislation, then getting a politician in an office, either he will buckle under the pressure of his impending next election and mm-hmm. not work on that issue or he will go rogue and be in support of that issue against his constituency and be voted out in the next election. Mm-hmm. 
and that is the constant crisis of politicians in the United States, mm-hmm. with exception of like judges and stuff. But we can we're going to touch on that as well, actually, because it's a, still a similar issue. Uh, interestingly enough, yeah, well, yeah, and we will talk about that. I, I'm interested. Did the pivot for you from politics? Uh, to what you're doing right now with Renew the Arts, was that a immediate realization or was there a slow transition into believing that and a slow transition into practicing it? Because, I mean, it's one thing to come to the conclusion in your head, this isn't really... The actual conclusion yeah. was kind of arrived on, like, whenever I reached the conclusion, I quickly made decisions about the direction of my career and my life. And but what was the reaching, first thing? reaching that conclusion was a long process. Okay. And what was the first, like when you, did you immediately say, okay, I've reached this conclusion. I'm done with trying to invest in my political career. And now I'm going to directly invest in this other thing because I realize what I really think would have the greatest impact yeah. in changing the hearts of people or changing. Yeah. Yeah. It was immediate. It was, it was, oh, this does not accomplish, this doesn't have the efficacy that I thought it did. Politics does not have the eff- efficacy I thought it did. And I have ceased all interest and work in that arena for mm-hmm. myself and started looking at applying myself in cultural avenues, particularly in the arts. Right. Um, but the lead up was honestly like a lot of quiet working on campaigns, mm-hmm. things that felt like... The things that, you know, getting a politician elected, it's a lot of like, like think about all the, think about road signs. Mm-hmm. Think about what that means. Like that's an effective strategy, putting a sign on a road. Um, yeah, it works. Yeah. And it's so flimsy. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's literally, literally flimsy. I can, well, that too. <laughs> but if you can just re- see this guy's name. Mm-hmm. That will change enough votes for it to be worth a lot of work that it takes to put these road signs out. Mm-hmm. And realizing, man, that campaigning is is a is a very um, it's a it's appealing to to um, oftentimes ill formed or shallowly formed opinions about what law and policy should look like right. and realizing a lot needs to happen before we actually start encouraging people to vote to, sh- to shape opinions about what is right and what is wrong or what is good and what is bad and you know, what law should be made and stuff like that. So right. um, I got a disillusioned, I think first with the, the campaigning, the process of campaigning first, and then realized, I think that, I think that there's just an overemphasis. And that's why I think it's so important for us to talk about this right now mm-hmm. in Conservatives in general, but particularly in this moment in the United States for evangelicals, there is an overemphasis of what it takes to change a culture that looks at politics as a solution and rejects, or not even rejects, but um, forgets all of the other ways that people um, are shaped and shape culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I want to address that. I think that we need, I think that we should talk about it. It's not a terribly popular thing to talk about at this particular moment. It'd be a whole lot easier to convince people of the futility of the political endeavor to change people's hearts if they didn't feel like they were, you know, winning so much that they're sick of winning. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I wonder if, uh, 
I wonder if there's going to be a lot of resistance to, to this simply because in many ways, conservatives feel like they've gotten their way in, in, in over the past few years and finally have a champion who's willing to get stand up done. for them and, and get things done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Well, well, yeah, I think that it, I think that it's really important to talk about it now because um, it feels less true, kind of. And it's funny. So I stepped out of politics around 2012, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And um, the political conversation did not feel as commonplace as it does now. Like I remember talking about politics with all my friends and I was kind of a niche. It was a mm-hmm. niche topic that people weren't really following. And I don't know. It just wasn't of interest to a whole lot of people. Right. Politics is like everything now. It's like, what's the state mm. of the United? You know, what's mm-hmm. the what's the situation in the United States? It's like, yeah. oh, Donald well, Trump. Let me check Twitter. I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and um, it feels like so much of our conversation is shaped by uh, what's going on in the political realm instead of necessarily just what's going on in, in other other realms. It's like all, you know, it all leads back to politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't even, even to the extent to that uh, over the past couple of years, and we've seen these things, there's been articles, because the phrase politics is downstream from culture is a fairly commonplace phrase that recently, and honestly, I hadn't seen it before in, in, then in, turned on its head. In certain circles, it, it, it has become commonplace. Although right. I think a lot of our, and I could be wrong. If you're listening, I'd love to hear, know whether or not this is a new concept, but mm-hmm. I'm always surprised that in some circles it, it has become commonplace, particularly like in the 2000s. Um, well, it became commonplace enough that people felt like they had to contradict it. Right. So recently there was that thing on the Daily Wire, which right. is that politics is upstream of culture. Which is just a flipping of what yeah. people have been. Um, it's like a flipping of the flip, mm-hmm. and then um, the culture is downstream from politics, which was the the uh, first things article that that came out in two thousand seventeen. So it's fairly old, but um, but yeah, there's. The, Did I say that wrong about the Daily Wire one? No, you said it right. Okay, you just changed some terms. Yeah, yeah, I think they also said culture is downstream from politics, but you said politics is upstream from culture, right, right. which is yes. still correct. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Anyway, the 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 issue with both of those, and it's always the case, is it's very, 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 very difficult to prove causation. So if something happens around the same time as something else happens, you know, maybe they're related, maybe they're correlated, but but I mean they could be correlated without there being a causation involved, right? Mm-hmm. So that a lot of these articles will say, well, there was a lot of political work that was done that was done around this time to push this issue, and now look at these polls and opinions are changing, and it's like, well, yeah, but what if the political work was being done because there was already a groundswell of that opinion? Like, it's right. very hard to determine which came first. Right. What I can say is this, and this is this is one of the things that causes me to to think that the that this trend of contradicting uh, that that what was a commonplace of politic, politics being downstream from culture, why would you want to contradict that? Well, because in some ways we want to lift up the idea that our investment in politics has not been a waste. 
Mm-hmm. And there's there's some kind of like the sunk cost fallacy, like having put as much money and as much effort. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars on political it's, elections. It is absolutely boggling yeah. how much money is spent, even just in the presidential election. Right, alone. just that one thing. Yeah. And so if you're going to spend that much money, spend that much time and, and let it take up so much of the conversation, even in the American conversational sphere, you know what I mean? Like, we have this arena for conversation. How much of that conversation is going to be political? That percentage has increased over the past few years on all sides. I don't care if you're right. on the right or the left. It's like everybody's talking about this stuff now. Right. Uh, to a much greater degree. So we have to justify why we're fighting so hard about these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because as far as I'm concerned, when I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, what's the what are the fruits and consequences that you're actually reaping from all of this effort and all of this money? Not a whole lot on either side, to be totally frank, from where I'm standing. Mm-hmm. But you have to justify that much amount of effort, you mm-hmm. know. But when I'm looking at it, and you say, okay, so is it is it actually causing a change, or is it actually causing an effect? Is there is there is is there is it worth the amount of investment we're putting in it? And that's a different question than saying, is it worth investing in? Exactly, exactly. Right? I think it's an issue of emphasis. Right. So what I don't want our listeners to take away is that we think that no one should be involved in politics or that no one's called to politics. I still think that's totally true. And members of my family, like that's their primary, you know, calling. And I think that's really important. And, totally. and so we're, you know, working alongside each other for the common good. Um, but I think that currently the emphasis has swung to a fixation on politics as a solution mm-hmm. whenever, um, it's just not a good strategy. It's right. not a, a. It's not really. It's not realistic. Well, to to try to um, to try to have effect for the good and actually shape the way that a country is right. through policy and, only or through politics. And no one is actually conservative anymore. the The idea of conservatism is a defensive strategy to preserve the things that can be preserved through coercion, so that the work of a culture can be done. I mean, that's really what conservatism is about. I mean, that's what it means to conserve. Mm-hmm. We have these things that have been passed down to us. They work as functional systems to protect and make boundaries on certain fundamental things, right? Mm-hmm. Like I need to be alive in order to work or provide for my family or do any of these other things. So I need a government that protects my life from people who might wanna take it. And that's a basic fundamental thing. Now we're looking to politics to solve every problem, Mm -hmm. not just protect my life, give me healthcare, not just protect my life, end social ills, not just protect my life, but like, tell me what is good and bad in the world. Like Mm -hmm. we're we're basically relying on on politics and and, and a legal code uh, more and more and more. And you see that with a higher and higher rate of centralization, Mm -hmm. whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, I don't really care. The, The point is that the centralization of the civil government is getting to the point where if you don't have a say in politics, you're gonna be ruled over in some very personal ways uh, that you don't have any control over. Yeah. And it actually brings up an interesting point because we, uh, on our Instagram account, we asked folks what they thought of this idea of politics being downstream from culture. And, uh, we got some really interesting responses. And one Mm -hmm. of them was actually, well, uh, I think in a, in a tyrannical government, it could be, Right or or the opposite could be true. Right, and this you know goes along with what you're saying about the centralization of power. Uh, I think that 
the more that happens, the more politics will truly, the more power you give politics, the more it will be upstream of culture. Right. And so you have a, a situation where um, there's a ton, say like, you know, a monarchy or even just a tyranny, you know, right. what, and they're putting out propaganda and right. all kinds of things. Like, yes, all of these, poli- all of this politic is shaping culture in a huge way. And you saw what happened, I mean, in the Soviet Union, Mm-hmm. When the the there was such a coercive mechanism, even when it came to culture, like mm-hmm. there was a yeah. cultural program. Well, even think about like North Korea. Yeah, exactly. Like, is Same their thing. culture shaped by politics? Very much Absolutely. so. Absolutely. Very much so. In fact, it might even be dictated by right. politics. Right. And so, but whenever we don't we want that. This. <laughs> That's the thing. We don't. You do you want to live in North Korea or the Soviet Union? It's right. like, well, no, I don't. So, okay, well, then you need to confirm with us <laughs> that politics needs to stay downstream of culture. You know what I mean? Like we. Yeah. We need to make sure that politics is not shaping culture because what we've talked about, and it's such an important point, and for whatever reason, I don't know why uh, a lot of people are not thinking about it in these terms, but politics is necessarily and essentially coercive. Exactly. So e- even philosophically, yeah. Uh, and I, the the role of government, like, um, is. Government has its authority because of the sword, mm-hmm. right? Philosophically and practically speaking, right. like, like, why do you pay your taxes? Because right. they can put you in jail. Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you defecting? Because mm-hmm. they will kill you. Right. Um, you know, they have the power of civil punishment. Right. That is why you obey. Right. Well, hopefully also because to some degree you let, you know. You like doing Good what's laws. Right. Okay. You like doing what's right. But that is where the authority of the government comes from and why it's capable of enforcing its authority is because it has the power of the sword. Mm-hmm. So whenever you talk about, um, you know, the enforcing, like, you know, continue on with your, your thought. Right, about- exactly. So if, if, you're, if you've created a culture that is actually a coercive culture, which is what the Soviet Union has and is what the North Koreans have, mm-hmm. it's, it, it was, it is a culture that becomes coercive because it is under the dictates of a political regime. Right. Meaning that if you don't abide by these values, these tastes, these things that we've called good, these things that we've called bad, if you don't live in conformity to that, it will affect your life. And there's no freedom in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- that is not a free society. That is at its very base, a society that is enslaved, like at the very base of it. It is actually slavery. It is, yeah. So in the case of the United States today, mm. it would be um, not in the best interest, for example, of someone who believes in, um, let's say, the sanctity of marriage mm-hmm. to opt against the entire direction of the people and have a strategy that necessarily forces an unwilling people to do something against their will outside what should be the binds of the government. Mm-hmm. Because in time, that ty- that tyranny can flip in the other direction as well. And it, and, it, and it does, that's the thing. You know, the you could say, oh, I love the fact that so-and-so is, is, is increasing these powers so that he can protect the things that I care about. But what happens when so-and-so becomes the other so-and-so? Well, he hands the reins exactly, over. Exactly. To you know, the person who years, isn't, who's doesn't, not, have, your doesn't have your same values, but now he has the same powers. Right. And so th- this country was actually founded on the idea that the civil government should do as little as possible. Meaning, we want you to do almost nothing. 
We need basic fundamental rights. Protect our lives from those who would take them unjustly. Protect our property from those who would take it unjustly and give us freedom to pursue happiness within the bounds of the law. That's mm -hmm. what we desire. Right. Other than that, we don't want you to do anything. In fact, I remember uh, there was like, I think it was like Daniel Boone or something that was running for some office at mm -hmm. some point. Maybe it wasn't him, it was somebody. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and he he was walking by and canvassing a particular neighborhood. You're David Crockett. David, was it David Crockett? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And basically he walked by a farmer, talked to the farmer, and the farmer basically said, what I want from government is to never see them ever. I don't wanna have any dealings with them ever. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't wanna see a government agent. I don't wanna talk to you. I don't wanna talk to anybody. I wanna get on, get on with my business and live a peaceful life and not be bothered unless, unless basically I am bothered, right? Mm -hmm. right? Unless somebody's trying to take my property or kill me, I'd rather never see you. Right. You know, not that I hate you. I just, right. I don't, you know, I just want to live my life. And that was what the United States largely was founded on. And it wasn't because it wasn't just because we were a bunch of isolationist individualists or anything like that. It was more a matter of that's not the place of government. Mm -hmm. That's not the place of civil government to actually shape a culture. That was the place of the church. And really, Really, it was the shape of the. Uh, it was supposed to happen from the church and from the family. And that's where you get like George Washington's farewell address, where he talks about the moral fabric of the society being absolutely essential for a democratic republic to work. Right. But before we get too deep into political theory, the two main <laughs> points that we tease out of this is a um, when we talk about politics being downstream of culture, I think the assumption is American culture or certainly representative politics in a representative culture, mm -hmm. right? So we're not necessarily referring to a tyrannical culture because in those cases, politics is upstream of culture. But we don't want that. Well, that's the second <laughs> point. So yeah. the second point is, uh, you know, and it's so funny, like um, it may seem like a, just a philosophical point, but the Daily Wire article actually that, or video um, that talked about, no, actually politics is upstream of culture. It controls culture. It, it, you know, yeah. gave a bunch of um, conservative, you know, potential conservative pet issues and was like, these are all the things we could lose. Cultural things like there's a, a reference to pornography. And do you remember what all that they had? It, it was, it was paywalled. So yeah. we didn't get to we, watch the whole thing. So right. we might not even necessarily be doing a huge amount of justice, but I'm not going to pay for the Daily Wire. <laughs> um, but, but all of these things... Uh, it's like, ah, see, we have the opportunity of making politics upstream of culture. And that's why we're talking, that's why we kind of got into political theory. But the allure of making politics upstream of culture mm -hmm. needs to be Put rejected in a big way. And it's not to say that it never happens in a, like, you know, you can have politics a politician in office who might leave a bit of a movement. So in that mm -hmm. sense, maybe politics is upstream of culture or something like this. But the idea of seizing of coercing political- coercing culture into the place where you want it to be? Absolutely not. You That's don't, not how it works. You don't, yes, exactly. The, 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 the authority of the government is the power of the sword and that's coercion. Mm -hmm. And you only do that to protect human rights, not to- complete your political agenda no, and because it's incredibly dangerous. It's so dangerous. And as soon as you start doing it, well, I mean, honestly, it, it, it is, 
you know, the, uh, the, the Grand Inquisitor parable, parable in um, Brothers Karamazov. Do you, I mean, it's, it's in, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, the idea there being that Jesus shows back up if you haven't read Brothers Karamazov, uh, it's this, uh, basically one of the atheist characters is telling this parable to one of the Christian characters and talking to him basically about why the church is illegitimate. And, and, and he, he says this parable and it is that Jesus shows up uh, during the inquisition and uh, the, he meets, he's arrested basically by the grand inquisitor and the grand inquisitor tells him, I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. And I wanted to tell you that we have fixed your mistakes. You resisted the temptation to power. You resisted the temptation to fame. You resisted the temptation to possession. And because of that, you lost, but we're winning. Mm-hmm. We're winning mm-hmm. because we have power and we have fame and we have possessions. And so in order to keep you from messing things up, we're gonna put you to death again. And, and that was basically this atheist critique of the church, mm-hmm. that the church, rather than following in the way of the cross and following after Jesus in, in understanding that there is a different way of effecting change. Jesus did not affect change by taking reins of power, by accumulating large possessions, by becoming extremely famous in his time. He's become very famous and very powerful and very you know mm-hmm. filled with treasure since then, but in fact, when you think about his actual, the actual process of his work on earth, it's very humble, it's very local, and his main goal was discipleship. And that's what he told us, go and make disciples. That's what he told us to do. Yeah. That's not go and coerce people. That's mm-hmm. not go and hold guns to people's heads and say, you will love and do what we think is right or we will put you down. Mm-hmm. Um, or exclude you from society or take away your possessions or make you a reproach and a laughing stock. Right. You right. know, that's not what it's salt. It's salt, salt and light. Salt and light. So, you know, there's a key, you know, it's it's really important. So whenever you talk about, well, maybe if our nation, you know, I, I could see some people that I know listen to this podcast and be like, wow, justice doesn't believe in the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> Uh, and it's like, that's, that's so not, that's obviously not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. What I am saying is that you can't, you can't, um, you can't force people to believe, or especially you can't force people to practice the sanctity of marriage. Mm-hmm. And if you do hold the sanctity of marriage dear, work on it in all the other, even more appropriate channels than politics right. in your church, in your church, in, in your, your family, uh, family in, in your local, you know, connections among your friends, particularly like, by example. Yeah. And, like, and strengthen, you know, strengthen the marriages around you oh, offer man. assistance, you know, be if, if I'll tell you this much, if <laughs> conservatives actually believed in the sanctity of marriage, we would have way more issues with divorce that is within our ranks mm-hmm. than we would have with, homosexual marriages like that that's that is uh that is so outside of um our control our control and our ability to you know but it's not outside of your control to be faithful to your wife and it's totally (laughs) within the realm of the sanctity of marriage you know what i mean it's like oh oh i believe in the sanctity of marriage oh what are you what are you doing to combat the 50 some percent well me and my third wife yeah (laughs) me and my third wife really think that you know homosexuals are challenging the sanctity of marriage it's like ah you know what i mean and so it it becomes a a a political pet project Mm -hmm. um when if you want 
marriage to thrive? Stop, like, trying to ram it down the throats of Congress. That's mm-hmm. not how marriage becomes a healthy institution, if mm-hmm. you want to think of it in those terms. Right. And, um, and, and so all this is say, so now people might be wondering, well, sounds like y'all really don't think politics has any place at all. Again, I, I totally, I think there are people in the Bible called to politics. You have mm-hmm. Daniel and um, other, you know, you have the centurion and plenty of people in, in scriptures have been called to politics. I was called to, po- or, you know, thought that I was called to politics and maybe for the time that I was involved was called to politics and have family members that are still called to politics and I feel like a co-laborer. Um, but it's, it's more taking, it's more of an of a, uh, error of emphasis where mm-hmm. we are fixated mm-hmm. on politics as the solution to our to moral everything. corruption or social injustice mm-hmm. or anything, anything right. that's wrong in the state of, 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 our, of our nation or of our country or of our people, mm-hmm. um, the, the demand is for political action, political conversations, political um, power or, or legislation to change the way that people are acting. Mm-hmm. Now, there I'll- is a place for law, yeah, like like there there are good laws, there are important laws to protect our rights mm-hmm. and to to make the country the country function smoothly. And I really don't want to get super deep into you no. know the I, I don't want to get back into necessarily the philosophy of government, but I think that there's a legitimate calling there. Here's the challenge that um, so let's back up just for a second. I think it's very important for us to talk about this right now because 2020 we have a presidential election coming up in November, and it is going to be our temptation as Americans, perhaps even especially as evangelicals, to fixate on that election as being far more powerful and important and life-changing than it is. And I beg everyone listening to not give it more power than it has. And uh, to match, so, th- so, so we are dedicating 2020, we're dedicating our theme at Renew the Arts for 2020 to this idea of politics being downstream of culture, to exploring it with a, a number of uh, podcast guests and uh, explore it in some articles. It doesn't mean that everything we put out is going to be like this, so don't, don't worry. You know, we're not getting... In fact, I want to explore how culture can be, you know, mainly focus on the cultural element of it, but, but have throughout this year a consistent reminder that, oh, hey, you know, knock, 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 hey, calm down. Yeah. It's, it's going to be okay. It's not a huge deal. And there are other things just as, at least just as important that, you that have will more shape the, the direction of the country that you might actually have more control over. Mm-hmm. So def- so vote, definitely, definitely vote and vote. Um, according with, to your conscience. According to your conscience and, 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 and make an educated decision. Like, you know, understand the issues, make an educated vote. You can even have, you know, we like to have political conversations. We like to challenge each other on ideas. You can continue to do those. But this is my challenge, especially to the evangelical church. For every dollar that you donate to a political cause, you invest in cultural transformation. That's our challenge to the evangelical church, because it is statistically like the last several years have shown that we are infatuated 
with politics Mm -hmm. and we need to break that habit. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think just realistically, every dollar that you invest in in, um, political change, you match that dollar by investing in upstream cultural change. And for every, perhaps, um, you know, do that across the board. Like maybe people don't donate a lot, but maybe they volunteer. If you volunteer for a politician, see if you can volunteer in cultural capacity. That's actually upstream of cultural change. So like, for example, if you donate to a pro-life organization, figure out ways, culturally speaking, that you can advance that cause that isn't just politics. Mm-hmm. That's my that that is our challenge to our listeners and to anybody else paying attention. That um, let's not let's not be taken away by this political moment leading up to the November election in 2020, and actually um, like pace ourselves a little bit and 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 diversify our attention. And I I think that that's actually not even that that hard. Like. Half and half, that's... It is hard, and this is the reason why it's hard. Sorry to interrupt. I want to take just a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. Without your help, we literally couldn't afford to keep doing this. I want to offer a special thanks to our newest supporters, Michael J.D. Lindsner, David Holcomb, and Sally Apokaduk. Thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast and this movement, please join our patron community today at patreon.com forward slash renew the arts. Half and half, that's... It is hard, and this is the reason why it's hard. Uh, I mean, if you're going to talk dollar for dollar, that's one thing. But if you're talking about your actual investment, I think one of the reasons why people like politics so much is that they can tell other people, they can get other people to do the work of forcing other people to do what they want without leaving their homes or doing anything really. All they gotta (laughs) do is go to the voting booth and vote this guy in and he's gonna do the work necessary even with guns to uh, uh, you know, forward the agenda in the world and change the world into the image that I want it to be. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that when you start thinking, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm gonna try and address like the pro-life issue and I'm gonna, try, uh, I'm gonna address it by voting for people that I think are going to vote for those things. And that's great. You should do that according to your conscience. Um, you should have people who go in and fight for those issues, who try to get the Supreme Court to overturn this r- horrendously unjust ruling and protect innocent life in that way. That's one way. But then if you start thinking, okay, well, how can I invest in this in a cultural way? As soon as you start thinking about that, what you're gonna realize is you end up having to go to crisis pregnancy centers. You end up having to go to uh, you know, meet with people, talk mm-hmm. with people. You end up mm-hmm. having, having conversations with people. You end up starting to think, okay, well, what's the root of abortion? Like, why is abortion happening? Okay, well, it's, it's un- unwanted pregnancies. Well, where do unwanted pregnancies come from? profligate sexual, you know, immorality mm-hmm. that's been Which actually on. like pulls around to, and I think we've gone over this a little bit in a previous podcast, but right. just for the sake of this conversation, conversation, this is a really great historical point. So I grew up in a conservative household that um, we were, were passionate about um, the pro-life issue. And, but the narrative that I was kind of told growing up was uh, the United States, morally speaking, was kind of bebopping along, or, or, mm-hmm. or certainly in legislation with um, 
with abortion, just kind of minding our own business. And then the Supreme Court in 1973 made the decision of Roe v. Wade mm -hmm. and abortion just went through the roof. Millions of people started getting abortions and it was this left field. Immediate, you know, about face. Yeah, that the Supreme Court initiated, which is totally not true. When you look at the numbers leading up to Roe v. Wade, tons of states were legalizing abortion. Abortion actually uh, started to taper off. Basically, in, in 1973, after the decision of Roe v. Wade, abortion significantly slowed in, an in its acceleration. Mm. Um, not only in legalization, well, obviously legalization with a... With the decision, but but in actual abortions obtained, mm -hmm. so it's it's like oh, oh, it wasn't that political or it wasn't that Supreme Court decision that made that happen. That made all of this happen. It was something prior. What mm -hmm. happened right before Roe v. Wade? The sexual why abortions. why are all you know why are all these people why are all the states approve you know legalizing abortion in the first place? Where's the demand? What's the Oh, there's a high demand for abortion. Why is there a high demand for abortion in the early 1970s? What happened in the late 1960s? And it's like, oh, the free love movement and the sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. So there you go. And all, most all of that was generated by cultural transformation. Mm -hmm. Seriously. By, I mean, you think about that time as a time when the music and the art of that time was pushing from below those shifts in mindset, those shifts in heart set. And I mean, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and, and one of the reasons I think it's so very important to work in culture is because I, I think it is the most consistent metric for how humans behave and, and what they actually care about. It is like people, people, People don't always do according to what they say they think is true. People don't always do according to what they say they think is right. But generally speaking, and I think almost this holds across the board, people almost always do according to what they say they think is good for them. So like people are always pursuing the good life, right? Mm -hmm. They might go to church on Sunday and, you know, but it's not necessarily the case that those religious convictions actually affect the way that they live their life because what's really driving them, what they really care about is what is my image of the good life? That's what I'm going for. Mm -hmm. And they don't betray that. Like people don't betray their image of the good life. They betray their, you know, the ideas that they say are right or true. They betray the moral principles that they say are right and true. I mean, we see this, right? I mean, the, the, the pornography usage and the divorce rate and even some abortion statistics are pretty even inside and outside the church, mm -hmm. which indicates that what's really driving the behavior consistently is not what people say is true and it's not what people say is right. So you can organize your legal system so that everybody's on the same page about what they say is right and you can organize your worldview system so that everybody's on the same page about what they say is true. But ultimately, the most consistent metric for how they'll actually behave is what they think is the good life, mm -hmm. what they think is beautiful and good, what they want to pursue and what they think benefits them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really needs to be addressed right. first. That's right. what's really, those other things can bound the conversation and make people uh, feel bad if they're not you know, in line with public opinion and all these kinds of things. But, but ultimately the thing that will really, really hold no matter what is what they love, what they long for. Mm -hmm. And so the beautiful thing about 
uh, family culture, church culture, uh, is that it can actually present an alternate vision of the good life. Right. That, okay, your idea of the good life is, uh, you know, unbounded sexual encounters, you know, that have no, no connection to covenant or marriage. Tender culture. A tender culture, yeah. Well, let me invite you over to my house. Come over to my house and, and, and witness the satisfaction and fulfillment of marriage. I mean, you won't witness that. I mean, the exact thing, but you will witness, <laughs> you, will, you will witness at least the event horizon of that, right. which is the way that my wife treats me and the way that I treat her, the, way, the, way, the happiness and fulfillment that we have together. I can, I can invite you into my house to have dinner with me and you can visit with me in my family and you will experience my family culture. Right. And that family culture, if it's, it is a vision of the good life. Mm-hmm. It, there's something that, you know, I'm not saying it is the good life. I'm saying it's my vision of the good life and it will contradict your vision of the good life if you're a tender culture person and I won't have to say a word. Right. I won't have to convince you that my version of, of, of the good life is better than your version. You will know it. Mm-hmm. And that's where the arts comes in because it has the capability of forming um, moments of culture for experience outside of uh, necessarily the logistics of having someone over your house. house right. So exactly. I don't have to have met John Lennon to have him preach to me what his what version of the, the good, good life is. Of the good life is. Right. Or the, you know, the, the whole, you know, all of the Beatles, you mm-hmm. know, I have a pretty good idea of what they think of concerning romance, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and, uh, and it's, they just inc- wanted to hold people's hands. Well, that's part of it, <laughs> especially early on. Um, and, uh, and they were incredibly influential, incredibly influential concerning um, ideals that people adopted around um, romance and sexuality, almost even chrono- chronologically in that order. Mm-hmm. Because if you listen to like, please, please me, mm-hmm. um, it, it's and it's so weird being on this side of the sexual revolution, because mm-hmm. maybe... It, it's hard to hear that album without knowing already about the sexual revolution. But some of the some of the songs are great, and they're fairly innocent. Like I mean, they're somewhat wholesome, especially early on. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't seem to be particularly. Um, but by the time they're at, why don't usurping. we do it in the road? It's it's by the they, time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things have so, things something have has happened. <laughs> things have gone <laughs> south, and. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, they, the, the, the ability of the arts to paint a picture of the good life through music or through a visual, through a story mm-hmm. um, is profoundly influential and effective. And it has historically been that way. Mm-hmm. Stories capture our imagination mm-hmm. and we desire to be like heroes. Mm-hmm. So when you frame a hero, you're actually wielding a huge cultural influence. Right. Okay. So we talked about this last night because we watched the Joker last night together. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how V for Vendetta uh, generated a, almost the anonymous movement. Like the, the anonymous movement, ha- it, it has its origins in, to some extent in the cult following of that movie. Mm-hmm. There's also movies like Boondock Saints, which has similar cult following. Following. Um, and, and for a lot of the same reasons, mm-hmm. the idea of the underdog uh, insurgent rebel 
who is able to, you know, make good on his destruction of the tyrannical overreach, you know, of the of the government. And that that becomes a hero. That becomes a hero image, an idea of what the hero looks like in my context. And it inspires people and it informs people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way that can be for the good mm-hmm. and in a way that can be for the bad. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino has talked about this a lot because his movies have so much violence in them and so many guns. And I remember him getting really, really angry with an interviewer one time who was saying, you know, you're affecting what people consider normal. And Quentin Tarantino, who's probably, you know, an anti-gun guy or whatever in, in politics or mm, whatever, mm-hmm. hilariously is influencing a gun culture through his movies mm. and is trying to defend the disconnect of that and really can't. <laughs> and so he just gets very, very frustrated and just shuts the interview down. He's like, I'm going to cut you off. We're done. We're done. I'm, I'm done. We're done with this. And, and he then he really... shoots the interviewee <laughs> or no, interviewer. No, I'm just he kidding. didn't do it, but he got he got really upset. And um, <laughs> so it, it, there are things like that where we see again the vision of the good life doesn't necessarily have to be good. Yeah. Like you might look at it and be like, well, that's not a vision of the good life. I mean, I watched the Joker. That guy seemed miserable. He was crazy. And it just ends in like a fiery inferno of chaos. Like, I mean, I'm not, that's no, nobody's looking at that saying that's good. Mm -hmm. But in reality, some people are looking at that and saying, that's good. You Mm -hmm. may not be, Mm -hmm. I may not be, we may see it as a cautionary tale or something else, but there are people who are looking at that and saying, that makes sense of the world I live in. You will see those Joker masks. Yeah. The you plastic will. ones with the yeah, bomb head. You probably will. It, I, I am convinced, you know. In if, the same if, way if, that you if, see if Guy Fox masks. Yeah, masks. if the V for Vendetta masks, the Guy Fox, Fox masks aren't able to entirely just monopolize mm-hmm. the <laughs> whole mask the, game. The whole mask thing. The mask you know? market. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> mask market. Uh, but so so let's talk about some. One of, the, one of the things I wanted to touch on is that there is not just American political history that we can look to, but. Um, one of the huge arguments for this idea of politics being upstream, or excuse me, politics being downstream from culture, is um, William Wilberforce's huge push for the uh, criminalization of the slave trade, and uh, he was a politician. So this is actually a really interesting melding, mm-hmm. which is really what you know we're not we're not panning political involvement. William Wilberforce, as a politician, recognized the need for a groundswell of moral improvement in order to get England to a point where it could swallow the difficult pill of abolition. Losing free labor. Yes. Yeah. Because he could see that even in his position, his mm-hmm. high positions mm-hmm. um, in, in English politics, that that would not do it. He was outnumbered. Uh, politically speaking, and did not have the groundswell, uh, or you know the the groundswell of the people, right? And so he went about strategically and very effectively working on that groundswell. He worked with um, local leaders to write papers about um, the wickedness of the slave trade. He would do these unholy tours where mm-hmm. they would tour. They would um, actually force people, or not force, but like bring people get, along. Bring people and make them see what was actually like Being the state done. of affairs on slave ships. Mm-hmm. Um, 
He had pastors. He like worked on informing pastors across the country. Um, all kind and, and and he worked even in the arts. So what's really interesting? There's this group that he was a part of, which was you know kind of this this little community on the outskirts of London. Um, where these people lived kind of close to one another and would get together and discuss these issues and strategize about how to do good mm-hmm. um, and affect good change. And among them were, um, what's his first name? Was it Josiah Wedgwood? The, um, the potter or the, you know, the plate maker. Ceramic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he, he, his plate is the famous one that shows a, a slave in chains saying, am I not your brother? Mm-hmm. And this plate ended up it was so like, um, it was so effective. Like looking at it was so heart changing. Um, along with all the other things that were happening, the people would buy these plates and display them in their home. And it it was like, look at this, look at this. Can Am you disagree? Am I not a man and yeah. brother? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was all of these collective efforts, not just in the political sphere, but in the sphere of, um, local church congregations. And, and also it was a, a reformation of manners. So one of the things that Wilberforce was trying to do was actually like cleaning up. He helped uh, local municipalities. Um, uh, he, he worked on the, like uh, curing the, the insatiable desire of prostitution in the day. Mm. And, um, and there were just red light districts that were just, nice. um, totally nasty, but also incredibly popular. Mm. Like the people were in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Makes sense mm-hmm. that they liked slave trade. Mm-hmm. Like their morals- Were corrupt. Were corrupt. And uh, he realized that it's not an isolated moral. You can't pick out an isolated moral, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> you know, take your pick of whatever current uni- United States issue there is. Mm-hmm. It's not an isolated political moral or political issue that needs to be changed. It's that there needs to be adjustments in character and what the good life means. And the good life does not reside in the red light district. And he went about changing that. Right. And the groundswell had to take place over the course of his entire life. But the result of it was the abolition of the slave trade in England Mm -hmm. in his life or just shortly after his life. It was right around the time of his death. Mm -hmm. It, It was finally accomplished. So, um, some of the takeaways from that are a, it's going to take, it's, you know, the nice thing about politics is, or the allure of politics is quick changes, right? You know, for every candidate, right. that is the campaign trail, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do it. We'll do it. You the, vote me in and I'll make it happen. What are you going to, it's even it, four years isn't, is too long. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do the first day you're in office? You right. know, that question, it's yeah. like, wow, you uh-huh. just really probably drink coffee and figure out where my uh, desk and <laughs> office are. I don't know. What are you, you going to sign the first day you're in office? It's like, slow down. Have a little bit of like, yeah. So it's going to take longer. It's mm. going to take longer. But it's more effective. It's more lasting. Yeah. The thing about these quick changes is that they don't last. Mm-hmm. They don't They don't last. They really don't. They, they don't do the things that people think they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and in many ways, the reason they don't do the things people think they're going to do is because the things that they're doing are already done. Most of the time, laws are just formalizing what is already a social reality. We're just mm-hmm. saying, hey, the the people have spoken. The majority desire to uh, have abortion on demand. Mm-hmm. So here's a law 
that you know makes that a little bit more streamlined so that the majority will can hold sway mm-hmm. but you know the 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 problem is obviously the majority will the problem is obviously the hearts of people who long to do these things or who think these things are okay mm-hmm. even if you were to change the laws that doesn't change that it mm-hmm. won't change even if you change the law today tomorrow is not it, the people are not going to be different mm-hmm. um, the whereas with these slower changes and more local changes, they take more work, and that's one of the reasons people don't want to do them. Because it's not just more work; it's more personal it's investment. Real it's real, real work. Real work. Time. Like I want to. I if I want to fight my fight against abortion, there's a few things that I need to do in my own life first. Mm-hmm. I'm married. I need to have a faithful marriage. I need to be completely free from sexual perversion and immorality in my life, both both privately, uh, publicly, in any way. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I have to be free. My heart has to be free of those things altogether. That that's the first work I have to do. And statistically speaking, yeah, we're failing. We're at that totally already. failing. Right, but so we're like, oh, okay. I don't want to do that work. That's too much. That's too hard. I can't succeed there. But it, but I'd if like I to vote see this the guy, change. yeah, exactly. If I vote this guy into office, then everyone he else will, will be make forced. other people do <laughs> what I won't do. Right, right. And that that to me is the real problem with this whole thing. I don't care if you're doing what you can in your personal and local. Uh, environment mm-hmm. in order to try to effect cultural change to the greatest degree that you can before God with the help of the Spirit, etc. Under the auspices of church leadership, etc., etc. You know what I'm saying? If you're if you're not if you are doing those things, then you know what? Like as as Justice already said, go vote. Vote in an informed way. That's part of your civic duty to, to as a citizen. You know, like so so do that if that if you're convicted to do it. Um, but if you're not doing those things, seriously, if you're not involved, at least at the heart level of mm-hmm. addressing these issues, then your vote is hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. Your vote is hypocrisy and it's it, you, you, you should set that aside for a time. And people feel that. I think that that's one of the reasons that the evangelical church um, is coming under so much fire is that there is that feeling that gap where it's like you say these things and you want these powers, but you're acting this way in order to achieve them. Or, you know, you say you're pro-life, but only for a certain segment of people for like the rest of the human dignity issues that are at hand, um, you turn your backs. Right. And one of the things you hear, and this is not true for every pro-life person, but one of the things you hear from pro-choice people is you only care about babies when they're in the womb. Mm-hmm. Once they come out, what what happens then? Once they're born, what happens then? Are you going to take care of them? Are you going to take care of the single mothers that have them? Are you going? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know? Or refugees? Or refugees that are you know, you know are coming trying in. to escape horrendous uh, uh, situations exactly. or even death itself. Right. And um, and we say no, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all full up here in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the but the there is some truth to that. Is all I'm saying. There is some truth to that criticism, and there shouldn't be. Well. Yes, exactly. If there is any truth left to that criticism, it needs to be done away with. Right. We need to fix that. We do. We and, do. Um, and I think what will happen, this is what's interesting. When we pull back a little bit from putting all of our eggs in the political basket and actually do the heart work and the hard work that's necessary in our local environments, I think what we will find is we will see success. 
Yeah. We will. That We will actually have success in the long term. Now, it might take a little while. Right. But, that, but it will be sure and real once we really start doing these things consistently as, as, as Christians and as a church. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the, I guess, the overall vision for, for what we're wanting to talk about, what, how, why we're framing it in these terms. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that it'll be, it'll be a good year. And I, I'm, in some ways, I hope that these, that these conversations are also um, stabilizing and comforting, especially as things get closer to this election and people start getting really nasty with each other because that's also going to happen. Or nasty with themselves. Like right. people, people, I've talked to people who check their phones and see the news and just like upset. get upset. Yeah. And it's like, that's not- Just calm down. It's, that's just, that's just politics. That's yeah. just DC. Mm-hmm. Like it's important. Okay. It's important, but there's a lot of other stuff that's just as important. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of other stuff that long-term has way more sway in what your life will look like. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Christians should lead that charge. I think Christians should be the ones that are meeting the future. Um, with a smile. Yeah, with a smile and in faith and working on all of the other uh, things that we actually can control and, and not even control, but can help. Influence. Does, can yeah. help with, can right. serve. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like how can we... Uh, make our local areas, you know, better places. Um, and in the terms of Renew the Arts and the, the artists that we work with and the patrons that we're developing a community for, uh, make art that actually captures the imagination and paints a good life that is good and healthy and true and, and beautiful and, yeah. and right. And um, that has huge amounts of payback. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so interesting. Politics, man, politics come and go quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the United States history, mm-hmm. whole parties have come and come gone. gone. But you know what sticks around is art. Mm-hmm. It really does. Music sticks around. Mm-hmm. Art sticks around. Even huge cultures that have had huge political influence, what's left of them? Ruins in art. Yes. And maybe some tax documents carved into stone, <laughs> but but basically it's art. Mm-hmm. Basically it's art, which to some degree is still like you know speaking mm-hmm. about what it was, you know, about what they loved. That's the thing is that's yeah. also what's lasting in that culture. Mm-hmm. We we know a little about what Roman what Greeks and Romans actually loved, mm-hmm. but we know very little else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we we know. Some of their political codes or political thought or their philosophical thought, they're, they're, those things have survived to some extent as well, but they don't have sway to the same extent. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we don't go and read their political codes and say, let us, let us base our political codes on these political codes because they're extraordinarily outdated at this point. Mm-hmm. But you can still go and look at Greek and Roman art and it still touches you. It still impacts you. It still has that effect. So, right. Um, right. So yeah, it's 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 a massive massive thing, and it, it it's easy. It's really easy for uh, our society to consider power, possessions, and prestige to be the most important. And it and it hurts me to see the church fall particularly prey to that. Mm-hmm. Of anyone, we should be the most eager to make long term investments of service and of you know helping our neighbor. And, um, and of not casting too much weight or reliance on what happens in the seats of power. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's our that's that's uh, so our theme for 2020 is politics is downstream of culture. We're going to continue exploring that with some guests and and some more conversations, and also just continue throughout the year our investment in normal art projects. It's not <laughs> like we're you know going to change our art projects to be political. In fact, that's I think the they're going to all be pretty much not political. Right. Give you a little bit of a break, <laughs> and uh, and you know just continue making beautiful, good, true things mm-hmm. um, that you know, that capture our, our imagination and, and make us want to uh, see a more beautiful world come about. Um, so spread the word and don't get upset about the election and, you know, invest in politics only to the degree that it deserves and invest in all the other things as they deserve as well. Politics is downstream of culture and... Uh, Sayonara. Oh, we should play a song. Let's play... Uh... Have we played Be the Beast from Warbler Sea of Glass? If we did, let's do it again. All right. All right. right. Roll tape, and we'll see you all on the other side.
fire. 